Hello, my name is Alistair Bain and welcome to the Retro Football Analysis Podcast. You join us now for episode 5 in our Rangers mini-series as we focus on the 92-93 Champions League campaign that remains one of the club's most illustrious European Cup adventures. We have a very special guest joining us today, which we'll introduce in a moment. And after the interview, Stewie and I will be back to wrap up the rest of Match Day 3. Hello and welcome to the Retro Football Analysis Podcast. Stu and I are delighted to be joined today by a true Rangers legend. In his time at the club, he had amassed no fewer than six domestic league titles, three Scottish Cup titles and three League Cup titles. And to boot is one of the finest fullbacks of his generation. We're joined today, of course, by David Robertson. David, how are you doing? I'm good, yep. Everything's good, yep. So finally got home, so happy now. Happy boy. Fantastic. Um so this episode, Dave, we're going to focus on match day three of the 92-93 Champions League campaign against Club Bruges. Um, as a little precursor, we like to do a sort of lead into the match uh, by taking a quick look um, at the team's form at the time. And the last game we covered would have been the 9th of December, 92. And this one obviously let's say, take place in March. There's a couple months in between. Um a 14-game stretch, David, between these two matches would see 12 wins, two draws, um, and Rangers would be top of the league. I believe it's now 13 points of a difference between Aberdeen uh, and yourselves at the time. Was there, you know, thinking back to it, was there a, almost a relaxation going into these final sort of Champions League games, given that the league was, was pretty much tied up at this point? I don't know if it was. I think it was... Uh... It was just a bit of excitement more than anything. Um, obviously, with the first club, to our first Scottish club, to our British club, even to play in the Champions League in the, in the final stages. So, um, I think it was a bit of an honour, and it was a bit of an escape from the the domestic part of it. You know, we had a good run, but I think I, I honestly think the reason that we did well the whole season was there were so many games. Um, you know, that that season in particular, um, I think we we played Leeds United um, twice. Obviously, in, in two weeks, and in that space, in that two weeks, we played Celtic um, and also Aberdeen in a League Cup final. So um, you never had time to think, and you obviously were winning these games. You don't have time to think. We hardly trained um, because of so many games. It was Saturday midweek, Saturday midweek, and um, as I say, you don't have time to think. You just you played every game, and um, you know I, I think when we moved on a little bit with the year when we played Juventus and Dortmund, I think it. Because it wasn't such a, a big deal being, you know, obviously playing in the Champions League, it's, we've, we've known it before. Um, you know, you go to Far Hill, then you go and play in Chirin, and, um, or you play in Chirin and come back to Far Hill, and, and it was hard to motivate yourselves. Um, I think that was a very, very tough time. But I think just that the freshness of a, a new competition, playing against some of the, the best teams in Europe, um, it was just an escape more than anything, and it took the pressure off the, the domestic stuff. So this would be game number 45 of the season, Dave. You mentioned we played a lot that season. Game 44, however, the lead-in to this was a 2-1 win at Ibrooks over Hearts. Do you remember any of the scorers that day, Davey? I think I might have scored enough. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you did. There was yeah, a, I think a through ball from a call, and uh, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a finish uh, in the bottom corner. Uh, McCoist, of course, scoring in that game, which would obviously yeah. be a and on 42 for the season, David, yeah, unbelievable at that point. Um, so in terms of preparation then, David, let's talk about your own personal prep going into this game before we talk about the team itself. Um, 
obviously this is you know the days before Y Scout and video clips and analysis and whatnot. Yeah. But what what would some of the preparation be for yourself in a game of this size? Well, I think I think just for me personally, it's you know I was always I, I never got nervous before games, but I was never hundred percent sure of myself. If that makes sense, you know the confidence part. I never had the most confidence in my own ability. Um, but when the game started, things changed. Um, but like Walter Smith. You know, it's just business as usual. And it didn't matter if you're playing Hamilton Ackies or, you know, Bruges. It, the preparations were still always the same. Um, there wasn't any difference. The only difference, m- more so the home games in the, in the Champions League, was that you do set plays on the pitch. That's about it. That's the only difference. And I think we only actually practice set plays when it's just corner kicks really more than anything. Because mm-hmm. um, in those days, there wasn't so much emphasis on set plays and um, you know tactical kind of stuff it was almost um, I think that's the only reason you knew that it was a Champions League game was you did some set plays otherwise it was just normal mm-hmm. um, I would do my same sort of um, you know build up but, but the problem was was that the amount of games we had you know a lot of the times you're in the treatment room and maybe the day before games I didn't train I was in the gym just to make sure you know, I loosened myself off. Um, obviously, the the sports science part of it wasn't involved. You know, the recovery part. It was a uh, you weren't coming in the day after a a league game against Hearts or whatever to do a loosener. You just had the day off. <laughs> you know, um, so and then obviously two days later you're stiff as anything. Um, and and I, I I you know even even in my time at, at Real Kashmir now, um, obviously we've got a bit of the sports science stuff and and I sometimes can't understand how two days after a game, they're, they're back to normal. It would take me a long time to get ready. And even the day before the game, I still felt sluggish and my hamstrings, everything was tight. So you just had to try and recover the best you can. Um, everybody was was totally different. But Walter Smith, one thing he did was he'd allow you to, you know, as long as you performed on the, on the day in the game, he would almost let you do your own thing. If you didn't want to train the whole week leading up to a game, then he would be allowed to do that. So let's talk then about that, Dave, in terms of the squad then. Obviously, we, we, we've we spoke, Stu and I have spoken this series about the size of the squad, obviously, 92, 93, completely different to now. What would you say is that the difference in mentality towards rotation back then? If Walter Smith came in and went, right, lads, we're resting seven boys ahead of this game in the week, this, that surely just wouldn't have been the case, right? No, I mean, I... I, I, I something still find it difficult to understand um, that part. I, I know when I, I, I got maybe suspended and you miss a game, I f- you know, it, it took you 20 minutes to get back into the game when you actually came back from suspension. So you're just totally not used to missing games or, or being left out or coming on as subs or being rested. That was never, ever the case. It, we just played every single game and, and I know the likes of like myself and Bomber and um, even Andy Gorham, you go through the whole team and everybody was nursing injuries. And it wasn't a case of, I, my mentality was that Rangers at that point could go and sign anybody they wanted. So mm-hmm. I had to make sure I was playing. And there was no rotation. I think the only time I was a little bit of rotation was maybe in the wide areas. You know, Mikhailachenko and Husser maybe swapped a little bit. Um, I, I'm not sure Dale it was Dale Gordon. Dale Gordon was there at the time, mm-hmm. um, and obviously, like that, you know, in the wide areas, um, it was just that was the only time we ever changed, unless there was injuries. Um, and obviously, the three foreign rule, um, or was it two or three? I can't remember how many it was. I mean, obviously, right. that's a 
had an impact. Um, and it was it always seemed to be Mikhailachenko or Peter Houston. But in this game, um, I don't think it happened very often. They both played, um, which didn't happen very often. But definitely the the rotation part was it wasn't even thought about. Even the teams we played against, it mm-hmm. was never like that. It's interesting looking at how the squads are built, Davy, at this time. And obviously, when you aggregate the best talent in Italy, for example, obviously the amount of Italian players to pick from, the ease of transfers between the clubs. Did you ever feel, you know, looking back on it now as a manager yourself, looking how this squad was built and perhaps the the amount of Scottish players available to Rangers to purchase mm-hmm. or the, perhaps a lack of movement within the league? I know obviously there's only a couple of transfers at the start of this season. Dave McPherson um, would come in. Um, you know, in terms of the best Scottish players, if we were to call it that, that were perhaps playing England at the time, was there maybe a reticence for the club to go for those players and favour guys that have maybe been there a little while and and, and maybe not buy as, as many Scottish players? Yeah, I think so. I know um, obviously like Sir Stuart McCall came in. Um, you know, I mean, to be honest, there was a lot of them, but I think because there was no European football on that point as well, mm-hmm. um, I, well I was beginning to come back in. But I think... Um, you know, any most mostly any Scottish player playing in Scotland in England um, would you know walk on their hands and knees to get back to play for Rangers or Celtic, mm-hmm. um, and more so in those days. It doesn't happen so much now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Walter Smith, and and I think the fact is that you're playing the Champions League as well. It's um, it, it's a bit of a draw for some of them. But going to the the domestic players, Rangers always I always found it. Um, Every season, whoever the best players were in the league um, in the Scottish League signed for Rangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it was like Alan McLaren's and obviously it was Alec Cleland later on. And, and and I think that's the way that, you know, that Walter had to do it. I think if, um, you know, if, if it was a foreign manager at that point, it might have been a bit difficult and totally different. But obviously Walter knows, you know, every player in Scotland. And, and to be fair, there weren't many players that you know, didn't play for Rangers, uh, mm-hmm. Scottish players. Um, it always seemed to be the best ones came and, and that was it. And in the negotiations, and I know it wasn't very difficult to, to get players because they wanted that to happen. You know, you look at Andy Gorham as well. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, I think Walter, I, I always admire Walter just based on the fact that he was, it's his first ever managerial job. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd always be an assistant and to have such a massive club like that and be successful straight from the word go a lot of pressure he knew who he'd bring in um, and you know what in, in all his time there he, he never had a bad signing I don't think you know maybe one or two a bit dubious but for that the particularly six years I was there I wasn't a bad one How then did he did he manage the <laughs> foreign boys in terms of the rotation you know what one minute you've got I know Gary Stevens is an example here that, you know, we talk about one of the best right-backs at the club. I know he had a lot of issues with injury, but even this season he would miss out just because the obviously the reformer rule. How did how did Walter manage that? I, I, I just think Walter's man management was was second to none, and it's definitely the, he's definitely the best manager that I've, I've worked under. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he, this knack of making everybody, keeping everybody happy, Mm-hmm. Um, obviously this season that particular season wasn't so bad but later on you know you guys like you know Peter Van Voss and Bo Anderson all those guys you know multi, a, a far bigger squad and mm-hmm. everybody was happy even if they weren't playing and you're talking guys that play for their country and never not played he just had this knack of making people happy although 
I do remember um, I was sharing the room with Peter Housteval when we played Leeds in the, the game at Elland Road and he was left out. Um, I think right. I think it was only two two subs, I think, in those days as mm-hmm. well. And um, he was obviously played a bit and he was left out. And I knew that that hurt him more so. I think if it was any other game, I'm not saying he was, he's obviously disappointed, but I think because it was um, the battle of Britain, obviously wanted to play in that game um, more, you know, and it was build up. It's, you know, it's one of the biggest games that the club played. Um, mm-hmm. So he's obviously disappointed. But apart from that, you know, if it was a party after it, even the guys that didn't play were playing and, um, or sorry, a part of it, the night out and what have you. So he mm-hmm. was, his man management with skills were just second to none and, and everybody just accepted it and everybody had such a, a huge respect for Walter Smith. The, the last one there on the squad, Davies, the, the younger players and obviously you're a, you're a young guy yourself in this team, but there's obviously a number of teenagers in and around the side at this point. Um, young Stephen Presley, obviously Gary McSwiggan in and around the team a couple of years would come on and score, obviously in the early rounds. As, as senior pros, how did how did the, their inclusion feel to you as a, obviously a starting player? And then when you obviously you've got guys like um, Goff going off at half time against Marseille, yeah. for example, Stephen coming in there, how, how, how did that feel for you as a as a pro? I don't, I don't, me personally, I, I don't think it bothered me. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was quite young myself, although I'd played, you know, at Aberdeen, maybe a couple of hundred games at Aberdeen before mm-hmm. I got there. And I was thinking I was only 21, 22 at the time, still relatively young. But these guys were basically coming in from the reserves, playing in the Champions League, um, like Neil Murray and, and, and those guys. But I think because they are always trained with the first team, um, you, you knew them, you knew them all. And, and like you said at the start, the squad wasn't the biggest. And you almost, well, you have to play those guys because there's no one else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously McSwiggin. I mean, it just shows you in Marseille. And, and again, it's the confidence that Walter had in all the players um, and also the ability. And, and I think, you know, you have to be quite strong mentally to play for, for Rangers. And, mm-hmm. and the, those young guys, like you look at Marseille, okay, Stephen Presley came on, made a, I think made a mistake for one of the goals, mm-hmm. um, if I'm right. And But, you know, but he, he did well after that. And obviously McSwiggin comes in, scores um, a great goal. Even remember the late David Hagen was on the bench because um, I remember seeing the celebrations when McSwiggin scored. So there was no fear in Walter playing them. And the players, it was almost like, well, Stephen Presley, Richard Goffitt's in there. No one, mm-hmm. no one was, no one treated them any different to, to the senior players. That's just the way the club was. Um, it's just a, it wasn't even a hard school. It was just a, a real togetherness mm-hmm. and. You know, Walt, like Ali McCoyst and, and all those guys, we'd treat Stephen Presley and Neil Murray and, you know, all those guys the same, just equally. There was no, like, us and them kind of thing. Terrific. Um, so a bit on the opponents then, Davey, we've got, you know, Club Bruges uh, coming from the from Belgium there, obviously Belgian champions. The season previous, they'd got to the semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup. Um there was a, a bit in commentary that they mentioned they were unbeaten at home, I think, for three seasons. Um, obviously, European football, different at that time. I think you played less games, I guess, over that mm-hmm. period, but still, it's, it's still a decent record. They're just some one out of this, though, Davey, just to get your take on the competition, given, obviously, the run um, that Rangers would have with Lingby in the first round, obviously, Leeds with the second. Bruges' run would be Maccabi Tel Aviv in the first round, in Austria, Vienna, which they go through in away goals in the second round. So yeah. slightly easier 
<laughs> yeah. Slightly easier path. What was your thoughts on the competition looking back at this time of completely unseeded, obviously, as a as a player? Did that give you that wee bit of excitement that you know you could really pull anyone? Yeah, I just feel that it was just an exciting time. Um, you know, I went to Rangers basically for those moments to play. Um, I mean, when I was at Aberdeen, you would play in a cup winners' cup, but you're out in the first couple of rounds anyway. Mm-hmm. You knew at Rangers that you had a good chance of progressing a little bit. Although that year we didn't probably expect to, to go as far as we did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, like say so the Bruges, and, and again, you know, times have changed so much. We didn't even watch a video of Bruges. Right. Um, I don't even think Walter spoke about any of the players. Um, wow. um, you know, it, it was like I, I, I knew that um, Amakachi and um, it was a Van der Elst. Mm-hmm. That was the only ones I knew. Right. And that's only because, you know, I, I remember I was, I was no, I don't even think it was internet then. I was just nothing. Right. And um, seeing about the World Cup know, maybe or something like that. Yeah, and, and right. there was no videos. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, honestly, in the in the time I was at Rangers, there was no videos. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't watch opponents, although it was weird. At Aberdeen, one time we did. We watched Sion play. And when Alex Ferguson was there, but mm-hmm. at Rangers and other times Aberdeen, nothing. So you were almost going a little bit blind. You'll maybe get, you know, Archie or, or Davy Dodge at the time would say, because Dodgy was the one that would always go and scout um, mm-hmm. a lot of the games. And he would come back and say, oh, it's the boy. Maybe if it was me and I remember against Juventus, he'd come up to me and says, oh, you've got to be careful, Torricelli coming forward and Delivio. And, and he'd tell me a little bit about how they played mm-hmm. um, because there was no access to watch the games. So you, you're actually going in a little bit blind. And I actually feel, you know, being a coach now and um, obviously a player then, obviously we've got, we use Instat um, where I am mm-hmm. and you can watch every game, you can watch every player, you can actually get clips so you can watch. So what we do is we'll give the left back, here's the guy that's playing against you, you know, all the good bits, the bad, well, I mean, it shows you everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're prepared, but, but I sometimes think that there's maybe too much information these days. Right. And I think it helped us going in blind. You know, I know when we played Marseille, again, we knew Volar, you know, Desai, Deschamps, all those guys. You knew them because you'd seen them in telly mm-hmm. um, previously. So you're going in blind. Um, you know, I, I, you said there about them being unbeaten. I, we didn't even know that. Um, I don't think we were even told anything. It was it was almost like you could have been playing against uh, Duke LaPomphus in there and just, anyway. you just step on the pitch and that's it. So the, the other interesting one, and again, this is when we talk about apples to, to apples here, the, their league, I was looking at the league at the time, Rouge were fourth, um, they were only 24 games into their league campaign, it was obviously would be 32 for Rangers, they'd overall played about, I think it's 15 games less even in their season, their you know, cup competitions mm. and whatnot. Um, is, is this something in the Scottish, you know, uh, sort of campaign at the time this is obviously the, the Premier League days uh, I think it was 44 games I think it was 42 games sorry yeah. um, did did you ever feel did you ever feel tired going at these games at this stage I guess we're in March right now but you know f- from a fitness perspective is it is, is your mindset it's better to play the games you're better prepared or is there maybe a, a sort of freshness element to this uh, come up against a, 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 a team you've never met before yeah, I think I think obviously the away games in particular as well because you're playing in different stadiums, different places. You're seeing different places, um, <clears throat> but there was never. I mean, you'd get a massage before games um, or le- leading up to games, but th- that's about it. But I had this thing where I would, um, you know, I would feel sometimes I'd feel dead 
You know, if, if it's an evening game, I would all after you go to your bed in the afternoon, you got, you know, about five o'clock, a bit of cream, a tea and toast and what have you. Um, and you go there and you feel dead. You know, you've been sleeping all afternoon and you just think the last thing you want to do is to go and play football. Um, and it's dark and the weather's crap and um, <laughs> you just think, oh, I don't really, I'm not saying you don't fancy, but once you get there and you hear the crowd and, but I had a thing because even, even then we did, there was no group warm-up, there was no team warm-up. It was mm-hmm. just your own. You go out, you all go out about roughly the same time. But I had this thing where I would go out and I could be out for 30 seconds or 20 minutes. I would see how I felt. And mm-hmm. if I could sprint after 30 seconds or a minute, I would come straight back in a stretch. Um, mm-hmm. So I was always okay. But I think, you know, I, I don't think any player on that team or any player really um, was 100% fit. You all did something and some right. niggle. But as soon as the game starts, you totally forget about it and you're up against it. And and I always felt um, in, in Europe, we were always up against it. We always had to defend a lot. Mm-hmm. Let's go through the starting team then, Davey. It would be Gorham and Goals, a back four of Scott Nisbet, McPherson, Brown, yourself at left back, midfield four of Hustra, Murray, McCall, Mikhailichenko, and then the strikers being McCoist um, and Haitley. So obviously a big loss there, um, and obviously Richard Goff at the back, but an even, I guess, even bigger loss in midfield with Ian Ferguson obviously injured. Um, it always seemed right, David, going through this, someone was missing. There was never a, uh, we've got a full compliment here. Um, losing a player like Goffey, obviously a club captain, big figure in the back four. Yeah. Who Was there anyone that would take that mantle in the back four or were you are you well drilled enough that, you know, you, you all knew your jobs anyway? I think everybody knew what they would do, but John Brown's a one and, and Bomber, he will obviously shout and get on everybody's case. But I just think he... He just typified what it is to play for Rangers, um, mm-hmm. and you know, Bomber. Uh, I mean, he's, he's limited ability. He wasn't the quickest, but he was incredible. Mm-hmm. And I just think that he would go through a brick wall, and 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 I think he was a huge part in that whole season, um, because, like I say, he he just he he just helped to back four. You know, mm-hmm. I like for me, I always knew he was going to cover me and. Um, he's got to cover big slim, um, but they, they were just so aggressive, um, mm-hmm. you know, bomber. And, and I just think, and obviously, Andy Gordon at back, he always knew that if, if they got past it, a pass, if, if they got past the back four, then you know that goalie nine times out of ten, he's going to save it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it mattered who played, um, you know, like it did against uh, Marseille when Presley played. I don't think it mattered who played it. And, and, and the recollection was no one. None of the back four or none of the team says, oh, no, Goffey's not playing. Right. It was like, well, no one even thought about it. It was just like, mm-hmm. well, we're going to play this game and that's it. No, like, apprehensive that, well, well Goffey's not here. What are we going to do? Interesting. Well, Anderlecht would set up um, in, a, in a 3-5-2 that night. That would be the third opponent in the group section um, that you face playing a similar system. Um, we didn't... We didn't manage to get footage of the, the Lingby game, but we obviously we watched the Leeds one for the for the program, um, and obviously they were matched up four four two against you, Stewie. I know you had a couple of questions about the, the sort of tactical overlays. Do you want to do you want to yeah, shoot I off mean, I, I really enjoyed these three games so far, but the question I had for you, David, and because unlike Ali, I I haven't seen your domestic games from this year, but every game so far in the group stage is three five two. 
And then when we face Marseille, Abadi Pele seems to be kind of an extra man against the two Rangers centre mids. And then when you mm-hmm. want to see SKA, there was a guy, Karsakov, who seemed to find a lot of room. And then, and then in this game, um, I'm forgetting the name, but the number four in centre mid for Bruges looks like he's getting a lot of room. And it's mm-hmm. as an England fan, it kind of struck me when everyone used to say about Gerard and Lampard playing 4-4-2 for England used to struggle against three-man midfields. So you're on the field in these three games. Do you do you feel like you're a number down in the middle of the park there and there's pressure there? Or how does that feel? I think there is, but I think we always sat deep and at times allowed teams to come on top of us, a little bit of possession. Um, but I think with a lot of teams, um, even if teams play 4-4-2, one of the strikers would always drop to be, you know, like a number 10 or, or help out to create a 3v3 in the middle of the park. But but with McCoyston and Haitley, that didn't happen. It was just a case of, well, it's three against two. You've just got to deal with it. Um, and like I say, we were deep. There wasn't a lot of space behind. Um, and yeah, yeah, there was. I just think we had so much confidence um, in defending um, in the middle of the park. Because um, if, if, yeah, I, I just, I mean, Fergie, when you look at the three, well, Ian Ferguson, you've got Stuart McCall, just workhorses, you know, cover every blade of grass. I know Fergie didn't play that night. Um, but you were just, you know, they would always be there, but they'd be attacking as well and force them back. Um, and I don't think, you know, like when we played, I don't even think we were told what formation the opponents were going to play. We'd always just sort of work <laughs> it out ourselves. I mean, that's how limited everything was and. I, I, I do feel that what Walter Smith did then and, and all the all the big clubs was that he he knew how he wanted to play. So he signed, it was like a jigsaw, like me. He never once told me how to play or not to play. It was like, you go and do what you do. Um, and I, I know that might be a little bit old school now, but that's just the way it was. And, you know, he never told Stuart McCall anything. Um, like for me as a left back, I knew that, um, in Europe, sometimes you aren't going to get as forward as much as you do at home um, in, in the domestic games. But no one told you that. It's just how the game goes. Um, but we did invite teams to come on top of us. Obviously, we're quick on the break. and um, But the, the overload, like no one, I, I know as a coach now and players think a little bit more tactically now and than what they did. You know, I'd often have, players coming in now saying oh we're getting done in the middle of the park or this is happening no one ever said that you just got on with it um, and yeah. like I say like a, a lot of the the clubs will get one of the strikers to drop to defensively to make it 3v3 but we didn't do it those two just stayed up the park all the time and um, obviously caused their back three some problems it's funny you say about bombing forward because it looked like the other part of the 3-5-2 is as much as there was an extra man central yourself and Dave McPherson and Trevor Stephen when he covered. I thought, I personally think from these three games, Rangers fullbacks getting forward is a, is a big, big strength of the team. And I know what struck me in Moscow was there's a lot of time and score coaching nowadays, right? And it's the 80th minute and you're 1-0 up defending a 1-0 lead on the road in the Champions League and you're smashing a shot on goal from 20 yards <laughs> yeah. and then two minutes later, the right-back's bombing on and putting across it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I yeah. can't bother and I loved it. But is that just as simple as we don't have that, like, overthinking of time and score? It's like, this is what the game's given me. You know, I, 
it doesn't matter that there's a 10 minutes left. I'm going to get forward because that's the right option. Because it was nice to watch. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I don't think we would ever go out and like, okay, we're going to have to defend like mad. You know, even if, because I know teams would throw the kitchen sink at us, but we still just, for 90 minutes, we'd try and play the same way. But we, like you say, we wouldn't, okay, 10 minutes up against it. We just need to sort of sit in a little bit. Fullbacks don't go far, but that wasn't the case. Um, Clearly. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, but again, no one told us, okay, just sit in. Like, I, I know now when, I, when I'm coaching, I'll say to players, so just sit in, your know, fullbacks just stay, keep my back for nobody go and, and what have you. But then it, it, was, it was almost like Walter just trusted the players 110%. Yeah. And I got one more question, and this is more for me teaching a fullback and, you know, if there's any young fullbacks listening. When you play against that 3-5-2 as a left-back, I feel like the opposing wing-back, he's not on your toes like he would be in a 4-3-3. And there's a bigger distance to cover to get him under pressure. So how how would you advise teaching that? Is it still a case of go get tight to him no matter how high he is? Or do you allow more space against a 3-5-2 than you would facing a winger in a 4-3-3? Well, I think they're a little bit deeper and they're more sort of coming on to you. Um, more than anything but the, the I, I obviously Rangers it was a lot easier at Rangers when we played 3-5-2 but we tried to play at Aberdeen and it was it was horrendous because we had three centre-backs that didn't want to go wide and I remember myself and Stuart McKimmy the first two we eventually scrapped it but the first two or three games all I was all I was doing was just running 100 yards because I was expected to defend and what have you but the 3-5-2 obviously allows you're almost sort of playing as a, as a midfield player um, more than a fullback or a winger. Um, but I think the problem is is that, like, so myself, when I played, um, I, I remember when we played against, we used to play Hearts, obviously we played Hearts quite a lot. I remember here in later years, John Robertson, and he says, you know, playing against me was so difficult because all he would do is just, i just go. And he'd spend all his time marking me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think with a, you know, with a, basically you've got one player in a wide area up against two, um, which is an overload. I mean, we obviously had an overload in wide areas. Um, and I think with Mikhailachenko, he would always sort of, not always, but he'd drift inside to almost become a number 10 and he'd allow me to go. So what happens is um, nine times out of 10, if this happens a lot, the the wide, or the, obviously the Bruges wide guy ends up, become, they become having a five at the back. Mm-hmm. Um, at times, I know that's happened a lot. Um, when I played, was it you want you can't get forward because you're under a lot of pressure. You end up basically having five at the back, and it's so difficult. But it's 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 a risk. I mean, every formation you play, there's always a weakness somewhere, you know. And three five two against a four four two, they've got the three v two in the middle of the park. Um, but obviously, in the in the wide areas, there's an advantage to us that night, and, and it helped a lot. Um, because I don't think, you know, Bruges would have maybe thought, well, they're playing away from home and they might just sit in a little bit. And they must have got a shock when, you know, you know, the fullbacks are bombing on. And um, Because even if, there was times even when I probably shouldn't have gone forward, but I just went. Because the quality of players that we had, um, as long as Stuart McCall and Mikhailachenko or laterally allowed have had, you know, 80% possession of the, the ball, I would just go. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, Hustra, I mean, Mikhailachenko, to be fair, on the left-hand side, 
Um, he wasn't exactly. Um, he wasn't the most hard-working player going back, <laughs> you know, should I say. So um, I would just go, and, and I knew that even though, you know, Bomber was playing as a centre-back, you knew that he was going to cover. Um, but whereas you play, if Hustos on my side, you know that he's going to defend. He's going to come in and defend. Loudrop didn't do much defending either. Um, it was just a confidence that we had that, you know, full-backs would go forward, put them under pressure, and we'd often leave ourselves two at the back. The one player, David, I wanted to touch on was was Van der Elst in this game, who played, I guess, as a, a sort of pseudo centre back. Would obviously play midfield as well, get forward. In, in modern football, are we are we maybe too quick to try and man mark those players? Obviously, you've defended uh, in two well, two lines of four with obviously two forwards, mm. not not necessarily defending a lot. But you know, given the distances Van der Elst is to the goal in modern football, are we are we too quick to go and Maybe put a guy on him to, to, to stop him building. Yeah, well, normally um, when you're, you're better players um, plays in that position, you know, and you want to mm-hmm. stop them getting in possession of the ball. But most of the time, um, you know, like I said before, one of the forwards would drop mm-hmm. and and stop them. Um, depending, obviously, depending on what formation you are. But the one thing I remember that Van der Elst was, and you know, when I've watched highlights before, he always seemed to be on the ball. Mm-hmm. You know, any time a Bruges player had it, it seemed to be him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, he's a very, very experienced player. Um, but even if you do man mark those guys, it's you know they're smart enough to get in areas where you're going to be, you know, cause yourself some problems. Um, but you know, I, I always, for me personally, I think that if if he if he's in possession of the ball and you can't get close to him, you let you let him have it. Um, mm-hmm. And but obviously, as long as you're well. Sort of drilled um, your back four in the middle of the part, middle of midfield. You know, you stop him getting the ball to anywhere. If you block all the gaps, the lines, and um, the gaps, you know, what I mean, then then it makes it very, very difficult for him because obviously he he was on the ball and he wanted to get the ball into the striker's feet or the midfield players. But the way we played was that a lot of the times the only thing he could do was play the ball long because mm-hmm. there was nobody. I was there was no gaps. There was nobody that he could play the ball to. Sure. So if we get to the game then, um, I think if we quantify this in, in thirds, it's maybe the best way to look at it. So the first third, I guess, based on chances overall, um, Bruges would arguably be on top in terms of quantity. Uh, Van der Elst had hit the bar from a corner kick uh, after about the 15-minute mark. Amakachi with a header at the front post um, just after the half-hour mark. Um uh, noticing a couple of long throws in the early part of the half, David. Obviously, they would then go on to result in their goal. Um, Crevy, I think the player that you're typically marking, uh, launched in a few long throws for this one. Um, you mentioned earlier about the preparation piece and obviously just you know living on your wits and sort of seeing what was going on. You know, de- dealing with something like that, then, David. How how would this back four approach? something like this, you know, they've launched three or four long balls in yeah. the box. How, how are you organising that? I think um, we, the one with Andy Gorham, we always knew that Gorham, we obviously we probably weren't aware that there was yeah, the long throw and so it was a case mm-hmm. of you just have to adapt it. Because in those days, there weren't many teams that had long throw and like now nowadays, every team seems to have something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we always knew that it actually benefited us because we always, even at corner kicks, we knew that Andy Gorham never came for anything. Mm-hmm. And we would always just defend the, the six-yard box. And, and it was almost just like a corner kick. We just defended it. 
I mean, you've got guys like, you know, Big Slim and, and Bomber. I mean, Bomber's in, in the air. I mean, I think he's, what, 5'11", 5'10", or whatever. But he's spring and he's so aggressive. Um, I, I just feel that, you know, we actually did okay with it. I know they scored a goal from it. Um, but I think the early part, we always knew that no matter who we played, and it always seemed to be home or away, we always knew the first 20 minutes we were going to be under pressure, you know, mm-hmm. potentially we could lose goals. Um, and we had this mentality, and I think it was almost like a silent rule that we need to survive the first 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of the times, I don't know if it was that game or something else, there was a big melee in the box, and I think I cleared I don't know if that was Moscow or, that was, or yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, um, but that seemed to happen a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was almost like, you know, uh, maybe because we weren't too aware of what the opponents had. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, no videos and what have you. It was almost a case of saying, like, okay, let's see the first 20 minutes. Let's see how they play. Um, and then just deal with whatever comes at us. And, and you know, nine times out of 10, it worked. Um, I know mm-hmm. it's probably not the way to go. And, and we know that, you know, Bruges and Marseille and these teams are very sort of well, probably more to the preparation to what teams are now um, mm-hmm. than what we were. Um, but it, it was just a case of, you know, basically defend for your lives. It was, that's the way it was. Well, just after that, there was a, a, an effort um, for Rangers. I think it was McCoist had a cross sort of come short with clip off the bar. Mikhailichenko with a header at the back post would miss it. Um, and then about four or five minutes later, again, another long throw. Zabinski picking up the ball at the top of the box. Looked like a bit of an indecision between Mikhailichenko. Do I clear it? Do I not? Hits off him. And obviously, they go 1-0 up. What were your thoughts then going into halftime, Davey? This obviously 1-0 down, you're right, pretty much on halftime. Is it, is it a bit of a sickener to, to lose one in that late in the half? It, it, it's, it is disappointing, but there's just so much belief in that mm-hmm. team. You know, and, and, and I'll never forget Walter Smith that no matter what the score was, and yeah, he would shout at you now and again and what have you, but... He just knew what to say. I can't remember what he said that that day, but he just knew what to say. Mm-hmm. And there was never fear. There was never, oh, we've lost a goal. There was just always a belief that we can go out and get something here. Plus, mm-hmm. I, I do feel in the in the Champions League that year, because we were the first team in there, that it was almost like, yeah, 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 just enjoying the experience and let's see how it goes. You know, mm-hmm. no one expected or, or thought, oh, we can go and win this. Um, and that was definitely not how I, I felt. It was almost like, this is a great experience. We'll just go see what happens. There's no pressure on us. No one's expecting us to win the competition, um, which maybe was a good thing. You know, there was no mm-hmm. pressure. Um, but, but obviously losing a goal before halftime is sickening. But, you know, just the, the character of the players, you know, as I keep going about John Brown, Stuart McCall as well, McCoyst and Haley. They're just warriors. They're just guys that will never give up. Um, and I don't know if there was any tactical change. I don't know what happened, uh, but it was just sheer blood and guts and grit that you just keep going and going and get that equaliser. In the second half, David, I thought that was very evident what you said there. And so two things, right? First of all, centre-backs, again, it's an argument these days that they need full-backs to help them defend. They do so in numbers rather than man for man. It appeared in this game that 
um, Brown and McPherson are saying to the fullbacks, even even Nisbet, you know, is more of a centre back right than a fullback. But you know, you can go forward, put balls in. We'll we'll stay man for man. We'll go against their two forwards, knowing that we'll we'll basically try and man mark them at the game, or certainly give you boys the freedom to um, to do it. And in the second half, there was um, a complete almost one eighty here. There was eighteen shots to eleven in, in Rangers' favour in the second half. Um, there was. You know, a double chance just after half time. Hately and McCall at the back post, a sort of double effort. Um, the, the one interesting one, though, and again, I talk about being aggressive. It seemed to be, and again, I, I doubt this was a tactical thing, but I run about the hour mark. The amount of runs forward from uh, John Brown either carrying it or stepping into midfield. There was a chance with David McPherson played a given go in the wide area with Hustra going at the front post and scored. They, they were, uh, you know, this was John Stones-esque. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Stepping at the back, right? Is, is I, that something that you felt then, that the, the centre-backs had in the locker, that they could go forward and attack as well, or is this just a complete one-off? No, well, I mean, look at look at Bomber. Bomber had played as a left-back, and not only in that game, a lot of games he would end up going forward. Um, and there would be times where me and Bomber were forward. Right. Um, and... <laughs> I think it was just a, a obviously there's a, a bit of urgency to try and get that nothing to lose kind of thing you know like I said before there's no pressure on you obviously you want to try and get that equaliser and you know no one no one told Bomber go it's just an instinct that he's mm-hmm. got I'm going to go here and obviously McFit, big, big Slim would go as well he obviously played the right back as well mm-hmm. um, you know and then you've got Stuart McCall who pop up in the box but I, I do think that even at times we were 1v1 not in that game, but even in other games, you're left 1v1 at the back, but he always knew that, you know, you've got the goalie behind them as well. And mm-hmm. um, it's just, that, just there's just so much confidence that um, in every single player. And, you know, I think when you've got, you, you, I think we always know that if you get the ball forward with McCoy and Haitley, um, there's going to be goals. Obviously, Haitley will cause mayhem. You know, uh, he, he, was a, he, he was a dream to play, play with, you know, mm-hmm. And, and as much as, you know, it, you know, obviously we're under pressure a lot in that game and, you know, on the back foot quite a lot, you know, the, that back three must have been terrified of McCoy and Haley. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think I, I didn't realise how good Haley was until probably recently, mm-hmm. uh, what a handful he is, because, you know, you watch games on YouTube and, I mean, you just wonder, in, in today's money, what would he be worth? Mm-hmm. You know, he was just an all-round player. He fast for his size. He was mobile, great ability. You know, obviously great in the air. You know, mm-hmm. and I think that helped us a lot. If there was no balls, and like obviously you're talking about Bomber getting forward, um, there was times in, in games where he would get the ball maybe at the halfway line and drive forward, and he'd clip the ball in for Haley um, for a header. And you knew if the ball's in the air, Haley's going to win everything. Right. Absolutely. Ali, can um, I just interject with a question? Of course. Here, Go for it. As an England flan, David, watching this has stung <laughs> me a bit. Because I sat through uh, a 94 World Cup qualifying campaign that England failed to make the World Cup because of Shearer's injury. And I'm watching here in 92 and 93, Mark Haley playing like this. I mean, what? Like, where did he stand, in your opinion, against the England forwards at the time? Is he, has he got the short end of the stick there? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of it was down to the fact, I know he was injured for a spell, but I think because he was playing in Scotland. You think? You know, I think, you know, and maybe they looked at it, you know, playing against the teams in Scotland, you know, he's scoring a boatload of goals and, 
and they might have thought, well, it's different, you know, playing in the English Premier League and, and or whatever it was called in, in those days. So I do think that he was, I don't think he was rated. I mean, I know he played previously. Um, you know, he scored against Brazil. Um, I think it was his debut he scored um, that, that day. But I think he, he was just, I, I do think, you know, in England, they didn't fancy the Scottish League and they must have thought it would be too easy for him. But they obviously didn't watch him play in Europe because he was given, like even Marseille, he was just given those teams to- a torrid time. Obviously didn't watch him play in Leeds either. Oh, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it just shows you, though. it just shows you. So on 75 minutes, Davey, um, Peter Houston would pop up, uh, go from a corner kick, uh, sent to the back stick area, McCall would roll it across and he'd, he'd, um, he'd apply the finish there. At this stage, Rangers are obviously, you know, they're, like I mentioned earlier, heavy on the attacks, creating lots of chances, creating lots of shots. There is, however, a chance right pretty much on full time um, a, a Bruges corner kick would fall over here at the top of the box and there you are making the block <laughs> probably with yeah. eyes closed <laughs> as, it, yeah. as it smashed off you. Um, in hindsight, David, looking back at this game, obviously we, we'd probably regard one each now away from home, Champions League, all the rest of it. But given that the other results in the group this night, Marseille would obviously draw with, with Moscow. Is, is this maybe one you look back on with a wee bit of, um, wee bit of sadness we didn't get the three points in this game? Well, I, I I think that the fact that we went a goal behind um, and you get one, mm-hmm. um, but but I, I like again, I always feel in that game. I know what you say in the in the second half, but it, it probably didn't feel that way. Right, that we were. It, I always felt we were on, on on the back foot all the time, defending, um, and I think that obviously been devastated if we lost our goal at the end. Um, but like I say, I just think it was a it was a campaign, particularly in the. It probably wasn't until the the fourth or the sort of fifth and sixth game that really we thought, well, we've got a, we've got a wee chance here. Um, mm-hmm. We just felt that, you know, you try and pick up points as you go along. Um, but I, I do, I think, to be honest with you, the the way at the end, um, we, we never ever felt, like, like, like you've said, that even in the 90th minute, we're still going forward, fullbacks are still going forward. Um, but at the same time, players would throw themselves in front of I mean you just look at the, the team through I've said it before um, all warriors and all winners and even though we're still going forward you'll get guys that will just put themselves in front of the ball and um, but I think we were probably still um, trying to, try to get a winner mm-hmm. you know we're still trying to get a winner up until that point and, um, and and again you've got to sort of carry your luck a little bit but I don't think it was a case of I mean, I remember when we came back. To be fair, we we got flew back that night and we all had a night out. So um, we went to, <laughs> went to town, got the airport, went to town. So we must have been happy enough for the result. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting you mentioned that day because three days later, and this was one you know just doing the research as a way for the next show. But the amazing part of this, right? You know, Scottish Cup quarter final, three days later against our broth. McCoyce and Haley are playing up front. This isn't, oh, we'll yeah. give these boys a rest. Or, no, this, no, yeah. ever these, the win bonuses must have been decent in those days, right? Yeah, no, the, bon- <laughs> the bonuses were good. But I just think everybody just wanted to play. You right. know, I, I, I can't remember, but, you know, I mean, Gayfield's the worst place in the world to play. Right. It was an away game, wasn't it? I remember. That's so right, yeah. won three, was it three nothing or something? Zero, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it's the worst place ever. And, and you think, you go, you're playing in Bruges, which is a good stadium, and, 
you come back and obviously with a night out after a game and you know, you're playing at Gayfield and everybody it just gives the same thing. I mean, it's as I say, it's just the way just the way that the team was. Nobody wouldn't I mean I don't I don't think there weren't many players anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, we like you say, we always had some kind of injury somewhere. There's always one player missing. Sure. Well, closing remarks then, David, and this is just, a, again, looking back as a footballer now and maybe doing a bit of a comparison to the current day. Um, I, I looked at the squads from uh, the 92-93 season, obviously today's uh, Rangers campaign. The, the current Rangers team are on course to play 56 matches this season, whereas you would play 64 in that year. Yeah. Um, amazingly, there are... Um, seven players, yourself included, you were the second highest appearances that year, 58, I think, at the 64. Um, there were seven of you that, that played, obviously, 50-plus games, whereas there's only three of the current Rangers team um, playing 50-plus matches. This is obviously a very memorable season for, for Rangers supporters, obviously, for, I'm sure, as you as footballers as well. But, you know, given the a sort of modern tint on it, given a, you know, let's do a, a bit of a sort of armchair quarterback here, what if scenario with, with modern trends and, and the rest recovery and the, the sports science, do, do you think this team genuinely had the, the chance to go on and win it? Or did clubs like Milan and Marseille maybe, maybe have a, a wee bit of an extra gear to, to go through, do you think? I think they had the, I don't know what's the gear. I think they basically had the experience of, you know, high level before. Right, you know, and week in week out, they're playing top level teams. I think, and we at this at a peak, you know, you know, like you say, you go and play abroad, and you know, then you're playing, you know, Champions League at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, I mean, I even look at I look at the Marseille team and the the Milan team and and what have you. I mean, the quality of the players there uh, was just you know incredible. And I always feel um, as a team, you know, we we had. And, and the Rangers teams that I've played in, I think, and it's no disrespect to the, the, us as a team, is that I don't think we were technically or is maybe tactically aware as um, previous other you know teams like you know, like the, the Louder Ups and the Grasscoins and mm-hmm. players like that. Um, I just think we were just a good team um, mm-hmm. that basically were up for any challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we were difficult to to lose with so much belief. No matter if it was Marseille or Falkirk or whoever, either goal down, two goals down, you knew that you can come back and win or draw the game. And I think it was just a, a battling team and a winning team. And you know you just wonder um, if we had the sports science or recovery, you know we might have um, you know gone a bit further. But because I know the the Milan's and Marseilles and and those teams, they were. You know, ahead of us in the in the preparation part of it and the recovery mm-hmm. part of things. Um, you know, obviously we found that when you know more foreign players came, they had just different habits. You noticed it, mm-hmm. um, and but I, I think that it was just a a fantastic journey. And like I say, it's um, it, it was enjoyable because you know we we I'm not saying we celebrated. Everybody hung out together, um, and it, it, the team spirit. Uh, I mean, I've never had a, a team even, you know, I try and create that in, in the clubs I'm at, you know, coaching, you try and create that team spirit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I don't think, you know, the amount of foreign players there are these days in teams and, you know, there's no restrictions that way. But the team spirit is ne- will never be the same as what it was, you know, in those that in that era. 
Sure. Um, but to having said that, you know, you've got two of the best strikers. Um, you know, if they're still playing now, they'll still be banging in goals. And mm-hmm. and I do feel that, you know, people talk about Haitley and McCoist, um that oh, it's in Scotland. You know, you see scores 40, 50 goals a season. Uh, but it doesn't really count because it's in Scotland. They could go down and do that um, in the English Premiership. Um, and I know that for a fact. So closing question for me, Dave, and I'll, I'll pass over to Stewie, would be, you're obviously here working under two, um, you know, a terrific coaching team. Archie Knox, I'm sure you'd have worked with Aberdeen, so you'd have prior with him, and obviously Walter Smith. If there was one thing that you took from either of them and, and perhaps you used today or, or you've used with players in the past, what, you know, would it put you, would it put you in the spot? What, what would that be, do you think? I think... Walter knew um, how to get the best out of each player. Um, he knew, I mean, I got I got one bollocking from Walter in six years and it was against Hibs. Um, I didn't have a great game and I don't, I don't I must have, he must have thought I was hiding in the game and, you know, and he said to me, he says, look, he says, we're the Rangers, we can't afford to play with 10 men. I don't care if you take the ball and put it in the stand every time, you have to get yourself on the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took that, but I think, um, like for example, Archie was at Aberdeen when he was with Fergie. He was hard as nails, you know. He was. I, I, I remember Archie when I was thirteen as an S form, and we had to, um, Aberdeen had Adidas kit, and in the summer holidays the S forms would go in, and but you had to wear Adidas. The only Adidas shorts I had was a pair of Dundee United shorts, and um, <laughs> I put them on. I remember Archie physically took them off me and put them in the bin. <laughs> um, but he was just a hard taskmaster. But yet, come to Rangers, he was, he was just, it was so much fun, you know. Because yeah. I, I, I was, I was in fear of him. But he was just a great, you know. Walter was, he was relatively quiet, but when he spoke, you knew. Mm-hmm. And now and again, he'd have a go. Archie was just the, the fun kind of guy. Um, but the one thing that Walter for me, um, and both of them. I remember one time we had a spell where we lost, we got knocked out of the Champions League, AK Athens, lost to Falkirk in the League Cup, lost to Celtic. And, you know, the, the sky was falling on the outside. Um, but Walter never, ever showed any, you know, stress, any sign of him being under pressure. You know, and, and like I said before, it's his first managerial job, you know, a lot of pressure. And he never showed it. And I think that's why we were so good, was that, he kept any pressure away from us. So, you know, you could lose a few games and you knew that it was business as usual. There was no changes. There was no change in personality. And and I think that's the, the one thing that you've got to be even with all the players um, all the time. And whether, you know, you're getting words from the chairman or the owner that, you know, you need to buck your ideas up or you're getting slaughtered on social media. And, and that happens. Um, obviously, it's happened to me. And, you know, you take the good times and the bad times. But, I think that's the one thing that I try and keep that away. I try and be calm all the time and, um, you know, just make sure you're there for the players. And, you know, and I know obviously players, former players still call him a gaffer, um, but you'd run through a brick wall for mm-hmm. him. And I think it's just the way he was. I remember when I first signed, he said to me, he says, you look after me and I'll look after you. And um, that stuck with me for the six years. Um, because if I you know, made a mistake or um, cost a goal or, or whatever, even if I got injured or suspended or whatever, I felt like I, I'd, I'd let him down. 
mm-hmm. and, and I'd never felt that way with any other manager. And and that's something that um that came natural to him. And that's something that's the one major thing that for Walter is that I've taken a lot of that into how I am with players. Terrific. Stu, any closing questions? Um, not as much a question as a uh, sort of setting up the next episode, really, because we're halfway through the campaign here, David, and you're yeah. one point off the top. So effectively, one point off a Champions League final with three games to go. Is yeah. the gravity of this setting in yet at the time, if you think back, or not really? No, I don't think so, because it's obviously halfway, you know. Yeah. Um I think, and I think the next game was against Bruges. It yep. was at home, yeah. Uh, I think I, mi- I missed that one. Um, that's when Nizzi scored. Um, yeah, an incredible goal. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think it was because we we still knew it's only halfway there. Still a long way to go. And like I say, there was no. I don't think there was any expectations. You know, everybody expected as well. We're not going to get to the final. Um, you know, maybe if it was you know two teams. Um, you know, I think it was two teams qualifying, like, you know, then you go to the next round and maybe that's a bit different. Um, but we did feel, you know, when you think it was Marseille in the group and the, and the squad that they had, and we knew how they gave us a bit of a lesson at Ibrox. Um, and you always knew that, you know, that's going to be a, a tough one um, to go to to the Velodrome and, and get something um, there. Um, it's going to be tough. But I, I don't think, even throughout that whole season, you know, we just took each game as it come. You know, like you say, you play Bruges and you're going to play in a Scottish Cup game and there's just so many games coming up. Um, you know, we, I think we played Bruges that game, the next game, and I think the next game after that might have been Celtic. Um, That's right, After yeah. the home game against Bruges. So, mm-hmm. like I say, there was no, there was no time to sit and think about your next opponent because you always knew two, three days you're, you're going to be playing a game and you wanted to play in the game and you just got to patch yourself up and maybe nurse a hangover, I don't know, and... Um, <laughs> And just get 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 playing again, and you know, you don't think too far ahead. You know, obviously, you didn't even think about trebles in those days. Now, do you remember? And maybe you don't, but given it's you've just played Bruges, the next game is Bruges. Do you remember any information, any scouting, any adjustment from Smith and Knox ahead of Game Four, or not really? No, I mean, um, like I think the only difference was maybe we maybe we did some things on a long throw in. Um, because like I say home games in the Champions League the, the day before or the morning of, it's actually the morning of the game we go to Ibrox and do some set plays corner kicks and um, I'm sure they must have done that that day um, but there was no I mean it, it's weird now because you know I do a lot of team shape and you know you try and get some of the, the players that are maybe not playing to try and emulate the team you're playing against um, to sort of play that way but there was none of that. It was just a case of, you know, Walter trusted the, the team and the players. And obviously, you know, you play the second time. You know, we didn't even watch the video of, you know, the, the away game. We just, you know, played and it's a case of, well, just get on with it. And, you know, like, if you've played against this player, you know what he's like. Um, and I wasn't, I was none of this stop this guy, do whatever. And there was just nothing. But I think the players that we had, understood the game and like Stuart McCall he knew what he had to do you know and he would just like I say there was so much trust from Walter Smith yeah terrific 
So, folks, David has a, a book, um, I believe it's uh, called The Quiet Man Roars, David Robertson's story, published by Alistair Aird, available just now. Um, that's available of the, the outlets that you can obviously buy ebooks and, and regular books from. David, what was the thought about putting these memoirs together? Is Alistair someone that you'd worked with before, you knew before, or, and this was a, a project you worked on for a while? No, I, I didn't I didn't know Alistair. Um, I'd actually been in India um, just as the coronavirus hit and got stuck in India in Kashmir for 49 days mm-hmm. um, before having a horrendous journey back and, and everything was locked down. So just out of the blue, I got a message on uh, Messenger and Alistair Aird. I'd, ne- I'd never spoken to him before, never heard of him before. Asked if I'd be interested in doing a book. He'd done um, David Wilson's book prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a you know conversation, and and it's quite it's funny because there's been two attempts before, um, just before I went to America. And when I was in America, I got approached by a couple of guys to do a book, um, but I think it, it just seemed to take too long, and it just mm-hmm. both fizzled out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the one thing I said to Alistair, I says, you know, I explained that situation, but the way he did it was was first class. You know, he did all the research. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up, and he 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 knows more about me than I know about myself. <laughs> um, he was telling me games I played in Italy for Aberdeen Youths, and you know he went through like the Rangers, you know nine in a row seasons and and stuff like that. And, and I I didn't know half of it, um, but he made it enjoyable. Um, you know, we would maybe a couple of times a week, thirty minutes, because he'd done so much research and he'd ask me my comments on it and. And what have you? And it was actually really, really enjoyable. And Brilliant. because when I first started, I did think to myself, "Oh, this is going to be agony. This is going to, you know, it's going to take forever." And I think we did it in it's maybe six months. But it right. was it was actually easy for me. He'd done all the research, and um, just it was just first class. Sounds like you should read it, David. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> might learn a few things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I got a big shock. I got a shock about myself to be honest. With you. There you go. I, I think the big, the biggest bit was at the end. There's all the players I played with, and they all, not all of them, but a lot, a lot of Willie Millers and Goffey and Walter and Archie and you know Peter Houston, Brian Loudup, all those guys. Um, like I said at the start, I was never the most confident pl- person in my own ability, um, but for them. You know, they said some great things about me and um, I didn't know, you know, I just thought I was just some guy that was invisible that, you know, was lucky enough to put on a, maybe like a, you know, somebody at one of Raffle that was getting to put on a jersey every week. And but I actually wish I knew what they thought about me when I was playing as opposed to finding out there. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Well, I think that's where we'll leave it then, chaps. David, thank you very much for your time today. No problem. Perfect. Thank you. So, Stu, now we've heard from uh, David about this match. Give me some of your thoughts, mate. Let's go through the, the Rangers team, first of all, um, and obviously some of the enforced changes. What were your thoughts on the inclusion of Nisbet and, uh, and Neil Murray to this lineup? Yeah, I think Murray's a useful player, isn't he? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know much about him, to be honest with you, but he's uh, very much in the mould of Ian Ferguson. Um mm-hmm. I will say notably in sentiment, Stuart McCall, I thought this was his best game per- on an individual level, comfortably of the tournament. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nisbet did pretty well. I mean, the fullbacks have been a sort of staple of this campaign so far for me. They defended well and they've got forward well. Um, I don't think Nisbet had a better game than, say, Trevor Stephen in the game prior. 
but mm-hmm. I certainly think he held up well enough in a game where Bruges had a significant amount of possession. It's interesting, Stu, this one with Nisbet. So the background in him was, this was a player that came into the Rangers team sort of late 80s under Graham Soonis. He was actually a striker. Um, and then, you know, due to the big lad who can head the ball vibe, I guess, of British football at the time, get put to centre-back. Uh, and then such was the... The versatility of Walter Smith loving a, a centre back at full back obviously got used there quite a bit. Um, Neil Murray really like Enigma here. He would go and have a, a cup final winning goal actually this season, but I think played pretty much every position for Rangers. Um, a real uh, interchangeable one. What yeah. was your thoughts on the on the wingers in this game? Because it's something we've not really saw them do so far as two out and out wingers in a game. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because. Uh... Mikhailachenko and Hoistra, I find them quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the last time out, Mikhailachenko had a fantastic game, and I mm-hmm. think he is uh, very good going forward. I think uh, he worked very hard in the Moscow game, but it does seem like Dill Gordon, Trevor Stephen, those kind of players give you a bit more on the defensive end. And I, mm-hmm. I got the same vibe with Hoistra. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he went forward well. Obviously, he gets the goal. I think he beat people off the dribble pretty comfortably. He had a shot blocked at the back post. So, I mean, I've got him in the top three Rangers players for the game. Um, you just wonder if they went all six with this winger combination. Maybe they'd score a few more goals. Uh, maybe they'd let a few more in. <laughs> you know, that's right. kind of the vibe I got from both these wingers. Let's talk then about the the two exclusions for the match or three rather if we want to include Durant in there Ian Ferguson obviously a missing midfield Richard Goff probably more notably uh, missing as the club captain at centre back did you feel the team lacked anything without these guys in it? Um, yeah well you know what I think Goff's missing for half the campaign right with three right. games in and he limps out at half time in the uh, in the other game um, mm-hmm. Davey McPherson played very well as a right back um, and now he's playing well at centre-back in this game. I'd, I thought John Brown really jumped out to me mm-hmm. in this game, both defensively against a uh, a very good front pair. You know, mm-hmm. like Fouquet boy, he wasn't big, but he's very strong. Mm-hmm. And he was very active and he was very much a pest and he was a handful. And then 20-year-old that uh, a lot of EPL fans know known as Daniel Amakachi uh, was lightning and had good movement and was looking to stretch behind. So that was a real real tough task for the centre-backs in this game, mm-hmm. especially given the possession Bruges had. And I think McPherson and Brown did a very, very good job of it. You know, a spoiler here for the end, but John Brown's man of the match in this game for me, for the job mm-hmm. he does defensively and for the uh, pretty pivotal role he has going forward, joining the attack in the second half as well. So let's talk about that Bruges lineup then, Stewie. Uh, we'd see another three-five-two here. Obviously, we covered it in an interview with, with David Robertson, but we'll go, yeah. we'll go through this talking about some individuals here. Let's talk about Stalins, the centre-back, and his sort of duel with Haley during this game. What were your thoughts on him? I thought Haley won it. You know, I thought, I thought all those three Bruges defenders, they're good players. You know, they've, uh, they look kind of skinny, but there's some deceptive strength there. Mm-hmm. But I think Haley wins the battle. I do. I think uh, Bruges had a lot of possession that looked good and a lot of connected passes and a lot of passing on the ground through the thirds. So it's... Easy to play centre forward for Bruges the way they were playing this game. Mm-hmm. Rangers were more direct. Rangers are getting balls into the box from the wings. And I thought the target man role of Hartley and the ability to get the ball back to goal 
tee up people for shots from range, win headers. I thought was pretty pivotal. I thought he was very impressive this game. I know he, I know he doesn't score, but he he allows Rangers to play in the final third very, very well all game. And I, for that reason, I think he's won the battle comfortably uh, with Starlands. Let's talk about the outsides then uh, before we sort of finish off with the guys in the middle. Crevy on the right-hand side, Borkelman's on the left-hand side. Both, for the most part, Stewie, were attackers and defenders, right? I mean, they would defend, dropping into a five and very much attack on both sides going forward as well. What were your thoughts on those two? Yeah, they were good. They were good. I, I was surprised, actually, because Crevy gets subbed off in the second half, and I thought he was causing a lot of problems. He was not mm-hmm. getting some good at set plays. He was getting some ball, good ball forward. He was getting the position. He was getting crosses across. Um, and, yeah, he's the first player withdrawn when they bring on the boy Vespai, which was a was a surprise to me because I did rate him and I did think he was having a, a good game. Borkelman's, I mean, they've both done a pretty decent job dealing with Rangers... Um, Rangers fullbacks coming on, like, but I would certainly say Rangers probably edged that battle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm not as convinced Barkleman's had that good a game. I don't remember many crosses. I don't remember a lot of quality ball in the front two, um, but I was impressed with Krevy. So the three midfielders then we've got Zubinski, the Polish international, uh, Van der Els, the Belgian captain, and a young Gert Berheyn who Bruges just signed from Anderlecht. Uh, this previous summer and was also a Belgian international. Give me your thoughts on on that midfield trio, Stu. Fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. as Davy said in the interview, the footprint of this game was Bruges having the uh, extra man in centre mid, and Rangers having those two v ones out out wide, right in the three five two, with the three central mids against the four four two with the flat two centre mids. So, I I just think when the ball was in that central area, Van der Elst is on it all the time connecting. Zabinski, I had as the best player on the Bruges team. He's coming up with little flicks. He's scored the goal. He's joined the attack well. He's finding space. And then Verheyen, he's just very, very good as the classic number 10. Get the ball between the lines, turn up field, carry it forward, get shots off, you know, and drive the attack. And one thing I thought was notable about him is as the game went on, he seemed to get more and more prominent. Mm-hmm. So let's finish off with the strikers then, Stu. I know we, we mentioned them a, a touch earlier. Yeah. Let's talk about their partnership then. What? How do you think this partnership differs from, let's see, the traditional target man box penalty box striker that, that Rangers are going with? Honestly, not that much. I think whereas Boy lacks the size, I think he's trying to do a lot of the work Hately is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a lot of physical battles with John Brown. There is a lot of challenges for headers he doesn't win there's a lot of back to goal play where he connects passes whereas Amakachi's running in behind so I, th- I think it's kind of a similar model personally and you know it's an error but often errors are accumulation of events in the game and if you watch Mikhailachenko's error for the goal it's an ugly header the boy wins just getting his head on it and spooning it up in the air and then he Mikhailachenko is rushed into a bad decision but boy's running at him so, like, is it an official assist? No, I guess. But it is an assist because the crosses went in and boys won the ball. He's created a loose ball for Mikhailachenko to try and win. And then he's pressured Mikhailachenko into an error that falls to the feet of Zabinski. And then it's 1-0 Bruges. So I think he was a, I think he's a pretty important figure up there. Uh, I just think his lack of size would mean that Mark Hatley is going to intimidate teams more and probably is a, uh, a better player slightly. So let's... Look at the game overall, then, Stewie. Based on 
I guess, chances in the game, the flow of the match. Do you think one each was a, a fair result overall? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> but neither team could have complained if they got beat. Right. Rangers couldn't have complained if they lost because of the amount of possession Bruges had, because of the amount of breaking lines they had, because of the ease in which they could find and support the front two. Um, but Bruges couldn't have complained either because of the accumulation of pressure in the second half, uh, because of the numbers up coming from John Brown joining the attack in McPherson, because of the saves that were forced out of their goalkeeper and the big players they came up with, and because of the ball crosses from out wide that um, the Brewer Rangers managed to get in the box. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think you can overly complain about 1v1. I will say at half-time, I thought Rangers were getting beat. Right. Probably. And I, I just think that flipped in the second half. You know, it's it, looking at the shots, I know we mentioned this briefly in the interview, but the, the, the data shows us that Bruges would have 12 shots to seven in the first half. So Bruges' XG at halftime was 1.2 to Rangers 0.74. So going in at 1-0, that's, you know, fairly reflective, right? Um, the second half, however, Rangers would have 18 shots to Bruges' 11. Rangers' second half XG alone was 1.92. So again, almost two goals expected. Whereas wow. Bruges' um, XG from 11 shots was only 0.81. So again, the fact they didn't score in the second half. Um, I'd be entirely surprising. That, I'd be interested to see that second half XG mm -hmm. against the other two games. Yeah, the, and I think this is the, the the big one though, right? Is when we talk about expected goals, and obviously we're going on probability here. The realities of this, Stewie, are Rangers had nine shots on target from twenty five, and Bruges only had five on target from twenty three. So there's. There's a lot of attack play here, right? There's a lot of shots overall, but what the teams are doing with them, that's, I guess, that's the next layer of this, right? This, there's no, you know, four nothings so far from Rangers. Certainly, Bruges haven't had that. So, well, they're both functional attacking sides. It's, it really is down to who's taking, who's taking the chances, right? And for Rangers, they've, they've got people who can take them. Uh, as as do Bruges, right? Both both of these teams are are very um, very equipped to score goals. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Very attacking let's, game. Sure, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the individuals then, Stu. Give me your uh, your top three players for for each team. Uh, man of the match, John Brown. Mm -hmm. I thought he was tremendous defensively. Um, I thought the second half he was a key figure going forward. He's dribbling. There was even a play where he won a free kick where he's off running the channel. Um, and it wasn't just him, actually, because McPherson went forward and forced a worldly save out the keeper with mm -hmm. the score at 1-1. But yeah, John Brown, man of the match. Um, Mark Hately, second best Rangers player. Um, thought he was excellent. Back to goal, Lincoln player, target man. Like It's one thing to go direct. It's another thing to be threatening going direct and it not just turn into long balls where the ball comes back at you. And the reason that was the case was Mark Hately. Uh, mm -hmm. McCoyce did play well as well. You know, there's a very, if you look on the Twitter, there's a very clever little bit of play from McCoyce for the goal where he could take a touch inside the 18. He backs away, clears the path, and the ball rolls to Hoistra. Um, but very much Hately. And then the third player, there was multiple contenders, to be honest with you. Robinson himself was very good. Um, McPherson was very good. Uh, McCoyce was very good. But I gave it to Hoistra. You know, just the uh, the accumulation as a pair of players beating off the dribble. 
the fact that he scored the goal, um, mm-hmm. he's inches from scoring two with the the effort cleared off the line in the second half. So that was the third best Rangers player. On Bruges, I had um, Zabinski, if I'm getting that name right, as the best player. He's one of those players never heard of, to be honest with you. And one of the beauties of this project is watching players like him find out who they are getting on Google, but he was excellent. Uh, second best was Vahir. Um, Very much got stronger as the game went on. Last half hour of the game, he was a pretty dominant figure. And then third was Amakachi. Um, like I said, boys' work rate created the goal, but Amakachi just offered a little bit more in behind. You know, he's spraying shots everywhere, sometimes wide and high, but... Yeah. He was he was a real threat, you know. There was that one period of the game; it was amazing. It was uh, McPherson joins the attack, passes to Hoistra, Hoistra crosses, and McPherson has a good ball pulled out the net with a save. And mm-hmm. less than thirty seconds later, we're down the other end, and Amakachi's in on Gorham, and there's another save. And that was just as much as Rangers did well in the second half. That speed of Amakachi always had you worried that they might concede. Mm-hmm. Well, the, statistically, Stu, the best attackers for each side would be Amakachi, obviously for Bruges with eight shots, only one on target, but amazingly, Stu, an XG Ouch. of of 0.96. So again, you know, well, he's on target, it's not the best. You can see he's getting in the right positions, at least. Um, McCoist with eight attacks, three of which on target. Again, his XG is 0.88. So again, you know, maybe maybe he was there to finish that one, Hustra put away, probably Hustra in a better position, right? So probably good that he left <laughs> from a, a Rangers perspective. Amazingly though, Stewie, from a, a creativity perspective, Borkelman's would create the most key passes, so a pass that created a shot. However, amazingly, none of those five passes that he, he uh, would, sorry, key passes would end up on target. Um the best creator for, for Rangers in the game was actually Stuart McCall with three key passes, two of which were on target, one of them being a goal. Um, so again, when we when we look at sort of the, the big moments of the game, sometimes they can sort of colour what we think of players, but at the same time, as we've highlighted during this, sure that the best players necessarily in the match aren't always the best statistical yeah. um, performers, but still important nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so let's take a look at the other game in the in the group then, Stu. We'd have um, Stad Velodrome in Marseille. Um, oh, my bad, sorry. At the Olympic Stadium, rather, in Berlin, uh, CSK Moscow would host Marseille. Amazingly, Stewie, a 1-1 draw with Aberi Pelli scoring after 27 minutes uh, and then Faisalin scoring the equaliser after 55. Um Huge result for Rangers in this regard, and that if yeah. Marseille win, obviously they, they start to create a bit of distance. But the, the two points for a win, even though it's it would have been a win, still keep the teams fairly close. Um, we've now obviously got a situation in this group where Marseille are top with four, Rangers are second with four, Bruges in third with three points. This is still all to play for now, even half, yeah. halfway stage. Yeah, the goal difference is plus three for Marseille because of that 3-0 win right. on match day two and plus one for Rangers. But you got, I mean, it's fascinating. There's three games left in the Champions League mm-hmm. and you've got three teams here within a point of each other with a winning goal at the final. I mean, it's on a knife edge, isn't it? Right. Um, and as good as the Marseille squad is, and it is, I'm not completely astounded that they get a draw in Moscow because Faisal and he was a good player. He gave Rangers mm-hmm. nightmares and maybe the gap was a bit a bit smaller than we all realised. Right. Obviously, Marseille have all the names and obviously Marseille go on to win the final. 
but like we're halfway in here and this to me is a real dogfight and you know Rangers have come away with a win in Moscow and it was a tough win to get and Marseille have come away from Moscow and they couldn't get the win so it's it's bang in the mix I know Davey Davey wasn't quite feeling like that was he like I think mm-hmm. it was a bit of a feeling of Marseille's superiority but mathematically we're well in it here um, it's a fascinating scenario and Moscow even for the disadvantage of only one team going to the final, Moscow are do or die here. They're going to go into match day four and it's simple as win the game or you're out effectively, right? So they're mm-hmm. playing literally for their lives. Well, this, this is a game as well. I'm just looking at the lineups here, Stu. The only player really missing from uh, the Marseille starting lineup was Rudy Voller. Everyone else is, is, is there. And again, this is the days before massive squads. So really your 11 is your 11, right? Yeah, uh, Rangers obviously got the same result um, in Germany, missing you know McCoy from the game and a few other um, starters. So you know, a point away uh, from home is always is always a good one in Europe. But certainly, you know, it, it shows that Rangers point away from home against Moscow was a good one. It certainly wasn't points dropped. Um, so looking at Group B, then Stu, let's move on to that one. We have um, PSV hosting Gothenburg. Um, and Eindhoven they would take the lead uh, with future Rangers star Arthur Newman making it 1-0 and then two goals from Johnny Ekstrom that famous uh, Swedish midfielder uh, and Mikkel Nielsen making it 3-1 for Gothenburg Street what a turnaround given yeah. that the first day Milan took four goals off them yeah I mean fascinating thing is you look at the top of the group and it's Milan six points Gothenburg four so it's close, but then you got Milan plus six goal difference, Gothenburg minus one. Mm-hmm. So, but um, yeah, there's going to be an interesting game coming up if it, this continues of Milan v Gothenburg rematch, right? Sure. Well, yeah, the, the other game in, in that section, uh, like we said, is with Milan winning was a, a 1 0 win in Porto. Uh, Jean Pierre Papin um, popping up with the goal again, just looking. At this lineup, Stu, this Milan team, I mean, we've been through it before, but every time I, I pull up these reports and look at the names, you know, they've got Lentini coming into this side that wasn't playing the last game. Not a bad, uh, <laughs> not a bad outfit at all. And it's shown through, isn't it? You know, right. Gothenburg are in touch and distance, but mm-hmm. the kind of halfway point that it's not like Marseille here who are tied with Rangers and a point out of Bruges, they're, they're kind of pulling away. For sure. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it to you this week. The next game we're going to be covering is in two weeks' time in the 1993 calendar on the 17th of March. Rangers would host uh, Bruges in a return game uh, at Ibrook. So, so yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be here to chat about that one the next time. So thanks for your time today, Stewie. Thank you, Ali. And as always, folks, you can check out all of our work over on our Twitter account, which is at Analysis Retro, and over on our website, which is retrofootballanalysis.com. Until next time, goodbye.